stay fly, stay fly. And Kamala Harris, when she was running for president, dropped out in November because she didn't have enough money. I don't think we ever had the money she had. Name one thing that you like about Joe Biden and one thing that you like about Donald Trump and one thing you dislike about both of them. Right? If you say police or black people, you're going to take your corners. So we had to change the discussion in order to actually have a nuanced conversation. You're listening to The Fly Guy Show. They do everything on the fly and in such a fly manner. Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests. Unless we say we agree. Unless explicitly stated. <laughs> hey, this is Larry Thomas here on the Bold School Podcast. You're listening to Psycho Vaughner's Fly Guy Podcast. Support, like, subscribe, and share. He's saying some good things. Share it. Don't keep it to yourself. All right. Peace, beloved. Peace, beloved. Peace, beloved. It's time to get on code. And back on the platform is the good brother, the Politico, the political aggravator, political instigator, the political evaluator, <laughs> Mr. Super Deep himself, Mr. T. West. And today with us, ladies and gentlemen, salute the queen. We have presidential candidate Jade Simmons with us today. How you doing, Jade? I'm blessed and uh, honored to be on uh, be on your program. Thank you so much for taking the time to make room for me to be able to share vision. I really appreciate it. Good, 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 good. Let me start off with a question. You know, um, we're kind of used, you know, in the world with uh, uh, husband running for president <laughs> and having the uh, stand by your man wife on the side. Yeah. Uh, how can you take on the world and be a mother and a wife? How are those dynamics? I mean, it's what mothers and wives already do, right? <laughs> you, you, you think of the dynamic. I was just having an incredible conversation um, with a lady named Sister Angela in Ghana, young woman who will also be running for the presidency there. And um, yeah, I'm telling you, it's 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 something in the water. It's it's, a, it's happening in the <laughs> And we were talking about that article that came out in the middle of COVID-19 and showed you which nations were handling it the best. It had Jacinda Ardern and New Zealand, New Zealand at the top and Angela Merkel was on there for Germany. And we were just asking ourselves, well, what is it? They're trying to figure out what is it? Let's just, as women, let's figure out what it is. And we figured out that the dynamic of a mother is to not only preserve life, but to preserve peace. So in our home, it's not good until everybody's good. And if you have multiple children, you'll know this, uh, if you got multiple children, you don't want one to feel less than the other. You know, if there's an insecurity in one of them, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create tension in the household. And I think mo- mothers and, and wives and women uniquely are geared to be on the lookout for how do we balance the different dynamics going on here. And I think what you saw in those nations led by women dealing with COVID-19 is that instinct kicked in. First priority, preserve life. I don't want any of my kids to die, right? And if we can keep them alive, then how do we create balance? How do we get the ones that work back to work? How do we get the ones that don't have jobs, jobs? You know, and so I think that approach, there is something uniquely feminine about it. And I think it it comes with both grace and grit. Because it's also a don't get it twisted moment. You know, we mama bear real quick too. So it's not that we're pushovers are easy, but our perspective and our starting point tends to be from a place of preservation 
uh, starting with the preservation of life. And so um, I think taking on the world, I don't mean to belittle the job of president, but many of the skill sets and the mindsets and the perspectives are already in place instinctively because of the roles that uh, both of those titles require. Well, well, you just mentioned how the women who are in leadership have handled COVID-19. So, you know, you're running for president. COVID-19 is probably going to be around in 2021. What do you do differently? You're you're very uh, politically correct with that word, probably. Because we fumbled the ball on COVID-19, we will see this virus now persist likely until the end, I believe, of 2021 and at the start of 2022. Several things we should have done differently is first admitted that it existed. How can I, a lay person, have been following COVID-19 since December, yet not hear about it in my own national media until February? There's a problem with that. How can I watch China, Iran, and Italy fumble and then we sit back and pretend like it's not going to come here because supposedly we're so great. And then when other nations offered us assistance, we said, no, we got it from here. We want to do it the American way. So first we needed to address it. And I will be, I will always try to call truth to power on both sides of the aisle. We saw Republicans and Democrats ignore the existence and the media of COVID-19. They did not cover it. Democrats were consumed with the impeachment. Our Republicans consumed with the re-election and making each other look bad. Meanwhile, COVID-19 infiltrated. And while the president was telling us that we should bring jobs back, he was incentivizing corporations to keep jobs abroad and keep their profit with it. And that's why we had to go to both China and Mexico for PPE to take care of our own people. So COVID-19 has been a wake-up call. It's exposed stuff that most of us knew was already there, but this time we couldn't, we couldn't look away. And so you would see me focused on two things simultaneously, which is literally job creation, because we're lying if we just say we got to reopen and, and go back to normal. We have to create jobs from scratch. And then the second thing is we now have to be in the industry of ongoing emergency preparation. Pandemics now will be a part of our future. Uh, lastly, I'll say our enemies have been watching. And if I were them, I now put biological warfare at the top of my attack list because I saw how we handled it so poorly. So I do believe it's going to be a part of who we are uh, for the foreseeable future. In order for it not to feel always like the wet blanket we're living under, we have to get out ahead of it, which is what we didn't do the first time. Interesting, interesting. Now, I'm going to throw the ball to good brother T. West. Uh, you actually had some really interesting thoughts on COVID. Maybe you could lead with that and then go wherever you're going to go, brother. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Jay, uh, once again, uh, thank you for the courage to come out here and answer the tough questions. Yeah. Yes, I really appreciate having someone such as yourself running as president of the United States, and that's very, very good. Thank My you. first question will um, relate to what we're talking about right now, the coronavirus. Trump says that the coronavirus started in China and blames its spread on China. <laughs> I don't recall Joe Biden ever saying anything about where the coronavirus started, but never heard him say that it did not start in China. Now, here's the question. If it is proven to have originated, let's say, here in the United States, what would you as president wow. do to heal the damage, which is global, 
and also definitely domestically here in the United States. You talked a little bit about healing it here in America a little bit. And also ensure that it never happens again. You mentioned the word biological warfare. Okay, all right. That's the question. Okay, so earlier when we were offline, I was asked, what's a question I've never been asked before? That may be one of my all-time favorite questions I have never gotten. Because what you just did is what we have never done which is flip the script and put ourselves in the shoes of other nations, which completely radically shifts our own mindset and viewpoint on how we behave moving forward. You're right. I'd have to look back to see if Vice President Joe Biden has just called it like it is. The, The truth is from the evidence we have, right, the most compelling evidence does show us where the origins are and that it was in Wuhan. Compelling evidence. Now, as someone who's had to fight the media for the last 10 months, I got a whole idea, all the idea on what compelling evidence is, you know, after that experience. But I will say, if we find this, this must be our new posture moving forward, is that when we relate internationally, we must start from a place of assuming that nations are equal to us and that and that we must respect them as such, which means that if we're responsible for something like that, transparency is going to have to be key, which is what you did not see in China. Now, China is known as a history of hiding numbers. You're not going to find out how many people died in Tiananmen Square. They don't release how many people die from the death penalty um, every year. They are a secretive nation where their numbers are concerned. Those are considered national secrets. I think if we, let's not talk about me being president. If we go on from right now, it does not bode well that we would be transparent because we have not been transparent as is right now with our own people. So I have a hard time imagining we would be. Now, under President Jade Simmons, I'd like to believe that not only would we be, would be, would we be present and transparent, but that our first motion would be, how do we alleviate the damage that we have done and are doing by continuing not to control the spread? Um, You know, China got in their labs pretty quickly. They withheld some information in the beginning. One of the things that I do think was good is that they revised their information. So it's just like all true. You think it's true until you know something different. And one thing that I think was powerful and and the WHO maybe can be commended for this, although I do believe they are a little bit too closely aligned to the source um, of the issue is that we must be okay. And politics has us afraid to do this. We must be okay with revising the information. The whole name of the virus is a novel virus. That means it's new. It means that from the jump, the one thing we know is we don't know everything. So why not tell us in the beginning, I've been blessed with some incredible medical advisors. And one of mine was three months ahead of the curve. She said, Jade, I think we're gonna find out these ventilators may have done more harm than good. So she said, she said, I think that when she's an asthma specialist, she said, I think we're causing people to drown in their own fluids when we instantly intubate them. That turned out to be true. And what I went online and said is if we're not careful to revise information and not be too prideful to say, hey, last month we thought it was this. But now we know. Let's make an adjustment. We're going to find ourselves as litigious as our society is. Seeing our hospitals sued, seeing our doctors sued, seeing our restaurants that open too early sued, seeing our schools that open too early sued. And that will fall back on us for our lack of transparency, but maybe number one, for daring to politicize a national health issue. 
I think that's the, the, the second major mistake after denying it is we made it a political uh, punt, a soccer ball, because we knew the elections were coming in November and we failed our people by doing that. Mm. Oh, excellent, excellent, excellent comment. Now, uh, I've got another question also. Um, you could, I, I initially, I, I, I thought to ask you to name two things, but let's just go with one uh, for sake of time. Name one thing that you like about Joe Biden and one thing that you like about Donald Trump and one thing you dislike about both of them. Okay, um, what I like about Joe Biden <clears throat> is that we can probably assume his intentions in the overall span of his 47 years in government was good. Um, and I think that's the reason that so many are standing behind him as an opponent to the current president, because they don't believe that the intentions of the current president are good. They're saying at least we have a good guy in office. And, and this is coming not from personal uh, relationship, but I will say that I have several friends who know him personally and they swear he's a good guy. Um, that personal perception of mine has been swayed by some of the things that have come out about him. Um, but I will say overall, I, I can assume that his intention and leadership is probably good. Uh, with Donald Trump, what I like about him is that he has not done politics as usual. What I don't like about Donald Trump is that he has done politics as usual. And what I mean by that <laughs> is he got in there um, by saying... I'm not a politician. And you better believe that's been a thorn in my side because when I say it, the first question is, well, wait a minute, that's what the president says and we don't need more of that. <laughs> so, you know, that's been a thorn in my side. But I think he had an opportunity to really disrupt in a positive way. And instead of draining the swamp, my concern is that he became the biggest alligator in the swamp. And what was revealed, I say revealed, we knew this if you were paying attention. He has always been in politics. He has financed politicians on both sides of the aisle. They, they were coming to him uh, for money for their campaigns, Mitt Romney, right? So I think he was always in politics. And I think there was an opportunity wasted, right? With, with this historic, miraculous win, there was an opportunity wasted to do what he said. And instead, he had an administration full of, of lobbyists and these things that didn't really bode well for those of us who were looking to be done with politics as usual. Uh, Joe Biden, what I don't like about him is I simply feel like it's not his season anymore. I simply feel like it's not his season. And, you know, something out of season, even a good thing out of out of season is bad. And so what we've been asking people is don't ask, do you like Jade or Joe or Donald? Right. Ask, what does the season require? And then can you imagine Ooh. that voice being the voice of that season? So if you need, if you've got civil and social unrest, why would you keep at the helm someone who is hell-bent on instigating into that, inflaming racist tendencies, and, and at least silently, silently condoning supremacist behavior, right? If, if you are intent on having faith-based leadership, why would you back someone who continually puts your witness at risk on a daily basis who exercises no fruits of the spirit. And if you wanted to see racial progress 
not symbolism. Why would you elect a Joe Biden who seems to be of the same vein of let's go to the Capitol, kneel down, raise our fists and wear kente cloth versus the vein that says there are laws that need to go. There are cases that need to be investigated. Statues are not enough. Aunt Jemima off the shelf is not enough. Giving me George Floyd Street is not enough. And I've not heard Joe Biden say those things. So if these are the things we need, why would you elect people who have already proven this is not the season that they're going to do those things? Mm. 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 Well, okay. I got one more question and then, and then, and then say, I'm going to give it back to you. We'll just, we'll just go back and forth. Sounds Um, good. This question is, uh, Jay, what do you say to those blacks who say you are running for president only it only splits the votes and might help Trump win re-election? What do you say? I've all you know I've gotten that question about every mm-hmm. hour on the hour for the last 10 months, right? <laughs> but like we said earlier, you must continue to confront these issues. What I would say to them is who taught you that phrase split vote? Huh. Who put those words in your mouth? And if you go back to the originator, the creator of that phrase, I promise you, you're going to find people on both sides of the political aisle, the same people, Republicans and Democrats, who don't look like they agree in public. But behind the scenes, someone asked about candidate suppression. Merle talks about how they'll cover you after the election when they're done doing what they want to do. People should know there's something called the Memorandum Agreement, signed legally binding, that Democrats and Republicans have signed to keep third party voices and independents off of the debate stage, off the debate stage, because they can't afford someone like me in the middle of that mess on Tuesday that we saw those, those presidential debates. Put me on that stage. You can't afford that because when you do that, Americans are not stupid. They go, oh my gosh, we have another option. I believe the majority of third party candidates, if they got on the stage, would instantly capture the hearts and minds of Americans. And then you would just have to convince Americans that it is okay to put your faith outside of the two party system. So I would say who who gave you that phrase? because it was given to you to keep you cowering behind party lines that have never really served you. And they allow you to speak that rhetoric and they say, Jade, not now, just wait till 2024. It's not true. I'll come back in 2024 and they'll say, Jade, not now. We just got a Democrat in office. We can't afford you yet. Or Jade, he won re-election. We gotta finally get a Democrat in. Wait till 2028. And then it will keep going every four years. So I would say be very mindful of the narratives that we're repeating, uh, because if they don't serve us, then we're doing ourselves a just an injustice by forcing others to give up their compelling option to vote for your favorite candidate. Lastly, I'll just say it's not my job to be less compelling than your favorite candidate. It's his or her job to convince you to stick with them. If my vision resonates, why would you want them not to vote their heart and their conscience? Hmm. Hmm. All right, Seiko. I, I, I've got. I, 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 that, that's good. I've got. I've got. I've got more. But Seiko, let me just let me just back out a little bit. Go ahead. Okay. 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 We had a good question from. Um, I don't see the question right now. I need to find the question. There was a question 
from Omar, and Omar asks, what's your position on reparations? Yeah. One thing we have done, I think, very powerfully. So, okay, so what we always ask ourselves is, what's your end goal? If you know what your goal is, then you must speak in a way that brings about that goal. So you will see that we very powerfully have avoided words and rhetoric that are being used against us now. We talk about reinvestment, restitution, reconciliation, restoration. A lot of other R words in there. We may not use your favorite R word. I am speaking right now to the people on Twitter coming at me for not using their favorite R word. Instead of looking for the word that you want, look for the solutions that you are seeking. And if you go to Operation Restoration 2020.com, you click on pro-human, then you click on shades of breakthrough, then you click on breakthrough for black America. I promise you, you will see the solutions you are seeking. You see, when, when, when politics gives us uh, some of these phrases and, or when they take our words and use them against us, we've got to be much more strategic and change the conversation. Reinvestment is an economic term. We understand that. So when you tell people only concerned about the stock market and the GDP, you talk about the value of reinvesting that 13 trillion that has been stolen from black businesses because of racism. You talk about what happens when you reinvest in black communities and you assure that more black people are able to have home ownership. You tell them the GDP is going to increase by three to 5%. Now they're listening. You see, so we have got to become smarter in how we talk about these things. When you talk about college and making it debt free, you don't just say free college. You say, what about strategic debt free education that focuses on the areas we need most right now in our nation? Top three areas, health care, criminal justice and education. We also know scientifically, if you put more people of color in all of those arenas, People of color will advance and do better. Healthcare, COVID-19, Black people, Hispanics died at a much higher rate. So why not incentivize debt, strategic debt-free education in those areas and healthcare? Who's going to benefit? Everybody benefits. We now have to reposition. People want me to say, I'm only here for Black people. I, I, I'm a child of God. That's, that's not what I believe I'm supposed to do. But I will unapologetically propose plans and policies that will uniquely affect black America because after 400 years of systemic injustice and systemic racism, we now must reconcile those things. And how do you deal with systemic injustice? You must build in systemic, systematic success. So when you look at those plans, you will see what a lot of you are wanting to see. You may not see the words that you're wanting to hear, but do not judge a book by the word that is missing from the title. Instead, please read the book. Interesting. Seiko, just a follow-up to uh, the viewer's uh, question. Reparations. Uh, Jade, former President Barack Obama was once asked that question about reparations, that R word. What do you say? What do you say? Obama did not use an R word. He, He used the E word. What he responded, he said... Your education is your reparations. What are your uh, thoughts about that? Your edu- That's the e- big E word. Your education is your reparations. That's one third of it. But if you reform my schools and you don't reform law enforcement and criminal justice reform, then what's going to happen is I'm going to go from school to my prison pipeline. 
You see, if you don't reform my economics, then you can educate me in the American education system, which right now uh, doesn't really do much to help us prevent the corruption that is often in our wonderful capitalist society. And if I don't have the financial literacy to actually succeed and you write me a reparations check, then we back at square one. You see, so education is a piece of the problem. And when you talk education, I want to hear specifically, are we going to fully endow our HBCU, HBCUs? Are we going to prioritize uh, those sorts of initiatives? Are we going to look at his, history curriculum reform? Not just elevating education. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes we have made as we have looked to rectify our wrongs is that we have generalized, we've used this word minority. Right. Let's give more uh, money to minority owned business. But we know it's not just minority owned businesses that are disproportionately affected. We know that when you have a grant for minority owned business, the majority of those grants go to white women. Right. And it's, it's no shade to white women. It's just saying, let's do the math. If you really meant for that money to go to black businesses, then go ahead and earmark it for black businesses. We do it for veterans. Right. We do it for the disabled. Let's get very specific now. And the reason you need the specificity is because you need very specific results. And we've seen the black community disproportionately uh, left behind in every arena. So you can't just pick one arena uh, to do that. Same is true for Native Americans. Same is true for Native Americans. Right. When you look at these unmet contracts that we've made with with uh, historically underserved groups, it is now time to go back and do what we said we would do <laughs> and be who we say we are. Uh, so you can't keep saying you're one nation, right, with liberty and justice for all when that liberty and justice is not reaching everyone. Now, speaking of Native Americans, Joe Biden, when asked the question Joe Bi- about reparations, Joe Biden connected and tied it to Native Americans. He, he, he said, yeah. well, Native Americans, you know, first, and then African Americans. That's what Joe Biden did. Uh, so, a response about that, and you come from the great, great state of South Carolina. That's right. All right. Now, let me talk Mississippi. Let me talk about a little bit your, your neighboring state, Mississippi. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Earlier, uh, part of last year and earlier this year, there was an ice raid of meat packing plants in Mississippi. And up to at least 800 uh, illegal immigrants working at those locations were arrested and removed from the jobs. After they were removed, those companies, those meatpacking companies, they not only hired, but they started training black workers there in Mississippi uh, to do those jobs there in those meatpacking plants in Mississippi. The question is, what is your position on illegal immigration? And do you think it mostly helps or hurt black communities, especially young blacks, black males here in the United States? Uh, Joe Biden said that if he became president, he would um, grant amnesty to 11 million illegal immigrants. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a loaded, loaded question. I first of all believe that we're all immigrants. Some of us willing, some of us not so much, right? But at some point we were brought here or or we got here and usually movement is a form of survival. Um, So I do believe that we need reform in our immigration uh, systems. And and I do support things like DACA, making sure people who we already made promises to, 
um, are here. I see uh, EZD was saying, like, didn't Native Americans already get their reparations? One of the things I want to make sure is we don't end up like the Native Americans with these promises that are unmet. We promised them a lot of things, education, um, housing. And if you look at the situation on the reservations, that's you don't want that. You don't want that to be uh, your reparations. So I think we have to be very careful um, in what we are willing to accept uh, and how things are positioned to us. In terms of immigration, has it mostly helped? I think that the conversation around it hasn't been helpful. Uh, first of all, I think the Democratic Party in particular panders to immigrants every four years and then doesn't really serve them in between because they don't have to because the voter turnout numbers are so low in the Hispanic community. So you can you know, try to get those votes, but you don't have to actually worry about serving those people uh, in the four years between because you know, what are they going to do? They're not going to do anything about it. That is the mindset. So I think there's an exciting opportunity. Uh, and let me be careful here because I said it earlier with minorities. Each group is different. We are not, minorities are not a homogenous group. And so I believe each group must be served differently. Same with immigration and immigrants. Um, I have immigrants who work for me. Uh, we have black businesses that we uh, partner with. My company is a black business. Most of my employees are black women uh, and women in, in general. And so I believe there is room as well, T. West, for um, some historic levels of collaboration that actually utilizes the numbers that we have in this nation. And I think politics has done a really great job of carving us up so that we cannot be effective. But at the end of the day, I think solutions still have to be unique uh, to the various people groups. Uh, and so I, I wouldn't put Native Americans and African Americans in the same group. Um, same with immigration. I think we have also watched ourselves be pitted against uh, immigrants. And I think this is maybe not the best strategy in terms of how do you win uh, a battle of injustices. And and uh, that's very good, Jade. Thank you. There on the screen, you saw, also saw um, you see the chart, and this comes from the Pew Research. It's a twenty-year trending, and over a twenty-year period from nineteen ninety <coughs> until two thousand ten, uh, the trend shows the incarceration of young black males, and then also for that same period of time, it shows the entry of young Hispanic males over the same 20-year period into the United States. So you saw the incarceration, you saw, which was the result of the crime bill that Joe Biden stated he was so proud of. And and, and thankfully, we, did, we do have a First Step Act that's actually undoing some of that. But what are your thoughts about uh, the reality, the numbers, that over a 20-year period, as you had young black males being incarcerated in record numbers you had a record number of young Hispanic males most of them entering into the United States illegally that means coming into the United States uh, illegally not citizens and all and remaining here in the United States working here in the United States yeah. and what, what that did at that time it also removed a lots of employment for young black males who, who were doing construction work laying uh, 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 bricks uh, uh drywall, painting, and, and new yeah. home development. It hurt Blacks a, a lot right there with that. Did, How would you address something like that? I think, first of all, let's let's call, call out the, the fullness of that correlation, right? Which was that as immigration rose, we saw opportunity diminish in the African-American community. 
as opportunity diminished, we saw incarceration increase. That's that's the right. That full circle that you're kind of pointing out there. Uh, my father has always taken. He's always contended with this statement. I think it was George W. Bush who was like, "Immigrants are doing the jobs nobody else wants to do." And my dad was like, "Who do you think was doing the jobs?" Before before they got here, was it just not being done? Was garbage just piled up on the side of the road? Like, you know, were, were we not the maintenance crew? Um, and and I think what also you do remember, black people are a, a dignified race as well. What happened is when you got another group in and discovered you could pay them grossly less, we understood it's not that we were high minded. It's that we knew we couldn't even support our families now on the wages that you had reduced to give to people who were desperate to be in our nation. And so that's one of the ways when I say we've been pitted against each other. Um, a lot of our focus is on the economy and fighting for higher wages. And one of the reasons, I make sure I'm giving away all my strategy here as we talk policy, but one of the, one of the reasons that we focus on wages is because if, if wages are forced to be raised all around and we have equal competition now, we can afford to, to actually where the competition should be is over the jobs themselves. When they lowered those wages, they took out the competition. We knew we couldn't even be there. So what? So what's going to happen to any people group when opportunity is taken away? You're going to find what you need wherever you can get it. You got family support. Where are you going to get that money from? Someone said, look, we need money for our small businesses, right? You don't have a loan because you can't get a loan from the bank nearest your neighborhood. So the likelihood that you're going to have the capital needed to start that business, not just start it, but sustain it is very low. So even if you, you get a good thing going for a few months, you're likely either to end up in debt over the good thing, the blessing is now a burden, and you've still got to dig your way out of that. So I do believe that addressing some of these issues in terms of uh, that disparity that was created, I think will be in, in addressing the disparity that is currently existing between uh, wages and also in financing of small business. <laughs> Someone was saying, you know, just cut me a check. Let me do what I'm going to do. Well, I want to cut you that check. I want to make sure you got financial literacy to make sure you know how to, to manage that money. I want to make sure you know how to, uh, to play the game of the system that is created because that's not going anywhere. I want you to know how to pool these finances as well with other uh, aspiring black business owners because this is an and season. This is not an either or. We want the government to give us everything. Now, you get what is due you because remember we did rep reparations for the Japanese, we did reparations for the Jewish people, for some Alaskans, and we didn't have a problem with the word even back then, right? So and we the slave the owners, and the slave owners, yeah, yeah. We 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 are we meaning the nation. We are very good at conveniently switching verbiage when we need to. So whenever we're talking about uh, programs that are going to help people build a pathway out of poverty, socialism. But when we bail out wealthy corporations, stimulus. Right? We're really good at that. And I think uh, one of the things that we offer very differently is more candid conversation about the hypocrisies that exist and the disparities that were created because of them. Mm -hmm. You have three thriving areas of focus. Um, <coughs> tell us about them. Why, why pro-human? I'm, I'm not hearing Biden or Trump talk about pro-human. There you go. <laughs> and you can you argue against? Can you argue against it? 
Can you argue against <laughs> prosperity? Can you argue against protection? You see, so much of this thing here has been strategy. When we came out of the box, we said, how can we not look like or sound like anything that you're seeing on the landscape? How can we at least get you to read down, click a little deeper? We knew that if we came out of the gate and said, pro-life or pro-choice, you're going to take your corners, right? If you say police or black people, you're going to take your corners. So we had to change the discussion in order to actually have a nuanced conversation. Um, and that was a large part of, we knew a lot of the issues that were existing was because politics as usual was using us as people, right? We're, we're doing their bidding, we're getting them elected, and then we're not being served in the interim. And they use certain buzzwords, certain phrases, certain rhetoric to make us believe they're on our side we vote based on that one phrase, right? My Christian friends, well, he's pro-life. But is he because he was a Democrat all the time before he was a Republican president? And he was clearly pro-choice before he ran for office. And if he's pro-life, why doesn't the death of a, of a George Floyd or protesters that were shot down by the Patriot, why does that not concern him if he's truly pro-life? So pro-human means that we not talk about the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb. You don't get to tell me about the baby in the womb and not be equally concerned about the family who died at the border, right? Or the George Floyd who died under the knee of a police officer. It forces us to have a fuller conversation. So those titles you'll see, um, they do contain traditional topics. You'll see immigration, uh, abortion issues under pro-human. You're going to see economic issues, healthcare issues under pro-prosperity. Because at the end of the day, prosperity is a much bigger word to me than money. It is, can we give people an opportunity to access the opportunity to live life and live it more abundantly? And pro-protection means, okay, what do we have to do to keep all of us safe? Can we just have one justice system that treats everyone the same? Can can cops respond to situations the same and not escalate one and de-escalate the other? Uh, that's because that's protection, right? And so we've just found a, a different way to talk about things that forces a deeper conversation. We're very proud of that. Wow, wow, deeper conversation. I Ooh, you just talked about the judicial system. If or when we have a Jade Simmons in the presidency and a Breonna Taylor situation happens, how does President Jade Simmons approach that? Because I really believe that the so-called riots are because of a fact of uh, ineffective leadership. If it was um, okay, let me back up and let you answer the question. What would you have done? Well, what would you have done if Jade, I mean, Breonna Taylor happened under your presidency? Um, so the riots, yes, like you just said, were ineffective leadership. What nobody is covering on your news networks is the fact that groups were sent to many of these places to create these riots. I was just in uh, Minnesota in George Floyd Square, which my goal would be that we don't have any more squares that we have to name any more streets that we think can symbolize progress and not actually bring progress. Um, I get excited about a Department of Justice that is no longer politicized, that reemphasizes again civil rights, that pays closer attention to cases that are happening in states that don't have hate crime laws on the books, like in the case of Armand Arbery. And a Breonna Taylor situation, you better believe that 
a DOJ under Simmons administration would be saying, we'll take it from here. You know, we, we want to take another pass at that because the grand jury system, well, you're not going to have that in this administration. Why? Because Barr already told you where he stood, which, by the way, means that his personal convictions are interfering with his job. He told you months ago he felt like Black Lives Matter was some kind of <laughs> insurgency. So already, when you come to him and talk about the racial aspects of that case, he can't hear you. That's a problem. And, and that's coming from a follower of Christ who says, my job is not to make you Christian. My job is to honor you in spite of the fact that we believe differently, which means that if, if I don't agree with Antifa or I don't like BLM, none of that has a bearing on how I'm looking at justice. So we would, we would depoliticize the Department of Justice, which has now become an arm to me of, of Donald Trump. It is his kind of lobbying platform. Uh, and and I, I stand by that. I also believe you put somebody in office, imagine an attorney general like a Marilyn Mosby uh, uh, down in Baltimore. She's one of the only prosecutors who dared to prosecute the police. And that doesn't mean she was anti-police. What she was saying is, I believe American families are equal to police. So when you look at our criminal justice reform policies, we don't have to go into demonizing either side. What we do is say, let's be honest about what needs to be addressed. You're going to find law enforcement officers on our team who have helped us write some of that reform. And they will say, Jade, I had to sit down. You have no idea how many officers I had to sit down, not just because of racism, but because of what one of them calls depraved indifference. She said, it didn't matter what color their skin was. At this point, all humans were, were less than if they were criminal or suspected of being criminal. And she said, you have to have the power to be able to sit those people down, throw those people out. I believe we need a national um, registry to track these kinds of offenses. Then you don't get a Derek Chauvin who has 14 plus offenses and is still out on the street. Um, so I, I get excited about a Department of Justice that would have some teeth uh, and that would really serve as a watchdog where civil rights are concerned. We saw a little, a lot of watering down of that under the Trump administration. I, I would say we saw that under the Obama administration as well. We had riots. We had situations where there was overreach by our first responders, yeah. harmful overreach. And we had benign neglect under the Obama administration as well. Mm. So say, say more. Say, more. say more about that when you say benign neglect, because I, I see now this kind of trend where, man, I'll tell you what, Obama's getting it during this election. It's like, I feel, ba- I feel bad for the man. You know, I love me some Obama, but I'll tell you what, these, these four years, it's like it's been a referendum on what he did or did not do. When you say benign neglect, what do you mean? I just want to, I want to be clear on anything. I mean that there were issues that needed to be addressed. And for whatever the political pressure, whatever the political reasons, whatever the reasons, those things were not addressed under Obama's administration. They weren't addressed under uh, Donald Trump's administration. And we've been saying the same thing for years. You can go back to when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed under, at, you know, at Hampton University. And we've been saying, you know what? We're getting a very different treatment. 25 years later, judicial system of America, we're getting a very different treatment. 50 years later, you know, America, we're getting a very different treatment. 100 years later, we're getting a very, and every time America has said, shut up. Yeah. And it happened under the Obama administration as well. I talk about the the ties that bind. I get get into friendly arguments with, especially my my Pan-African friends and 
They don't, they don't cut them any slack. I mean, not one inch of slack, right? And so I said, well, let's just, let's just play this out a little bit. When he was running as the first, right? And he had to run on change, which is what we always need, right? Changes, we always need. Every four years, we need change. Um, the difference was he didn't get this moment right here. Let me tell you, whether we like it or not, when you look at the history of revolution and transformation, you're always almost you're almost always going to see a joining of hands between the oppressed and the people who look like the oppressors, but they have a different heart. So take George Floyd because we were shut down in COVID-19. You had white people across not just America, all over the world who were paying attention, not just watching, but buying in. We went to New Mexico, <laughs> my team, which is primarily African-American core team. <laughs> we went to their Black Lives uh, Matter rally. We were the only black people. We were like, what would y'all do if we weren't here? Like, you're seeing how this kind of buy-in where, I mean, and I'm, I'm jokingly exaggerating, the guy on the mic was biracial um, and there was one other black couple in the crowd. So what you're seeing now is this shift where you, you have the dominant uh, dominant race in terms of the ruling class, as we, as we think of it, who are now buying in to the fact that we have systemic racism. It's like, did you notice how it's an epiphany? Everybody's saying, oh my gosh, we have this thing. You got statements of solidarity, Reebok, Nike, we, NFL. <laughs> what? A couple years ago, we still didn't even believe it existed. I do believe, and I, and I cut Obama slack in this way, he did not have the benefit of this moment in time. And if we have this moment in time, why do you waste it putting a Democrat or a Republican back in office? Because where, where Obama's hands truly were tied, people will say, well, he's a black man. He couldn't just go after black issues. Well, he was a Democrat and he, ha- he had to focus on Democratic issues. Trump's a Republican. He has to focus on Republican issues. For the first time in our nation's history, you could have an independent president and you don't have to wake up wondering whose side she's on. It's a whole different climate and opportunity than I think any president has had a chance to lead in. And I feel the current president is fumbling it miserably. And I don't believe that Joe Biden would really take hold of the moment. Um, I, I think I think progressive issues, which are important, would very swiftly take the forefront over uh, some of the race-based discussion. I think you'd see that very quickly. And I don't believe we'd go beyond naming a street after George Floyd. We can't even pass the qualified immunity uh, bill right now. How many months has that been? That should have been the easiest thing to do. We couldn't hey, do it. Uh, T West, T West, yeah. take it away, brother. Take it away. All right. I'm, uh, that's that's very good. Very good. Very good. Let's go to international policies. Let's talk a little bit international. Uh, There is, has been, and continues to be a movement known as BDS. Okay, boycott, divest, related to Israel. Um, What is your position on that? And then also, secondly, uh, when we're talking about uh, NATO, military, uh, America's America's military is uh, 10 times bigger, larger, spends more money than the next closest uh, uh, nation in the world. 
Yeah. So uh, with all of the expenditure for military and with NATO, what would your policy be with that? And also your policy as relates to BDS. Let me tell you what bothers me about the spending you just mentioned. All of this incredible spending that the president brags about. It's the most we've ever spent on the military. Our military is doing well, but our enlisted members are on welfare. That's a problem for me. So we we must not either be impressed or um, consider the money abomination unless we understand where that money is going. And where it's not going is to pay the actual people who are in the military risking their lives on our behalf. So we talk a lot and you see the policy scrolling. We do have a foreign policy and um, military up there as well. And one of the things that we focus on now is are our resources being used in the right way? Uh, are we are we making use of all the options available to us before we go and, and invade a nation, right? Before we go um, and set up shop. Are we staying in places too long trying to convince them to adopt American culture and then acting surprised when we leave and stuff goes up in flames? Uh, So for me, it's not just so much the spending. It's how are we really using that money? Are our actual people who are serving us being served? We've, We've tried to prioritize or focus policy from a core of service. You take strip away the titles. Doesn't matter if you're military, uh, LGBTQ, black, white. How do we serve you first as a human? So when we see large amounts of money being spent, our core question is, are humans actually being served in the process? In terms of BDS, <coughs> I won't say uh, that I necessarily support everything that's that's in the movement. What I will say, my stance on Israel as a whole is this. First of all, in terms of wanting to be the president of the most informed nation in the world, we need to understand, especially for my my religious friends, that the reason we're in Israel is not really because of religious belief. Now, a lot of Christians aren't going to say that out loud. We have to allow ourselves, we have to not be naive in this season in terms of rhetoric. Now, my friends who believe that we support Israel because of Christian belief and, and, and ties with with Jews, okay, that's fine. You can be happy that we're supportive of them because of that reason. But the real reason the U.S. supports Israel is because we've we've gotten strategic, especially strategic military and defense um, help from them. We're aligned in that way. That's why you're not going to see a decrease and a back down of that policy because it doesn't serve the U.S. strategically in military and in, in military terms. So we want it to be a humanitarian issue. But it's not really what's on the table. And everybody knows that behind closed doors, I hope. But if we look at the humanitarian aspect, I think that you can support a nation and still require of it humanitarian rights, still require of it uh, that it not uh, (coughs) commit humanitarian violations. And that's what we haven't done a good job of. We've let people like Saudi Arabia do whatever they want to our journalists. Yet we're going to go to war in Iran over the one guy that never even told us his name because supposedly right, he was tortured. Yet our own journalist, dual citizenship, goes over to Saudi Arabia, is chopped up in a garbage bag, and we don't really bat an eyelash. So you'll see us talk a lot about consistency and balance, making sure that we're starting from a place of respect, but that we're not also being naive in the approach and that we're requiring more of our national partners. 
that's where we want to start. When we when we get to the table, we'll be revisiting uh, many of our <coughs> friendships, looking at promises that we've made. Uh, we want to set a new tone for our relationship with African nations. First of all, understanding that Africa is not one big country, that it is what, you know, 65 nations there that we need to see differently. And that five, we, five. sorry, 55 nations we need to see differently. And we need to also uh, change the tone of that relationship. If you look at how we've related with Africa, it's been mostly based on trying to condense it down into 10 seconds here but if you look at the last phase of our most current relationship with Africa it really is not it's not full of wholehearted initiatives we when we were really invested in Africa we were fighting the cold war we had Russia and so we were okay with any leader over there even if they were committing humanitarian abuses as long as they helped us in our cause against Russia and once we lost that enemy as a target our wholeheartedness, our buy-in to Africa has decreased ever since. And that's a long time since the Cold War. And so we'd like to revisit those things and make them now mutually respectful, mutually beneficial relationships that of course have strategic advantages for us, but that we're not taking advantage of another nation. I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. Yeah. Hey, now, let's, let me uh, jump in before you ahead, ask your question. Mm-hmm. EZD asks, you know, how would you deal with that when he's talking about factoring the powerful and wealthy military industrial complex? Uh, and then back to you, T West. Um, your thoughts on EZD's comment? Yeah, first of all, I, I like having EZD on here. It's like a third third host in the mix, which is <laughs> um, I think the, the most important part of that question is right there after the ellipses there that has captured both parties. This is why we must now have a palate cleansing presidency. You know, when you when you have an independent in there, you get an independent thinker who is not thinking from the partisan, lopsided partisan agenda. And I think that is how we are able to look at um, all, all of these issues. But you're right, you know, we put a lot of weight into our military. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, the lady from Ghana was saying, you know, I look at, at all the American bases over here. I don't think we got any over there where you guys are concerned. <laughs> you know, we, and we try to do the math. We're like, no, I think you're right. Um, and so I think that you'll see what he really pointed out in that question is that if we look close enough, there's not much difference in the agendas of both parties at the end of the day. You know, at the top where the rhetoric starts, there is. But at the end, we're watching money reign supreme. And I do believe we're overdue for an era where people are prioritized over profit. The irony is when you do that, you still profit. Uh, but I think it's it's a longer term and it's a healthier profit that we get to um, benefit from in the long run. Uh, so, OK, very good, Jay. Uh, still in the vein of uh, foreign policy. During the Bush administration, you had the invasion military of Iraq and also Afghanistan, which caused trillions of dollars. Okay, Uh, in fact, uh, that hurt the situation with blacks in New Orleans, where the hurricane Katrina hit at struck. Okay, that money situation. So my question is this. We saw that was Bush. Then we saw under Obama, we saw uh, the military invasion of Syria, the military invasion of Libya, which resulted in blacks being killed, whipped, beaten, and also enslaved in Libya. Hmm. That that was not under Gaddafi. That was after they took down Gaddafi. 
you as president, what would you have done in a situation with Libya in 2011 and then also beginning in 2012 with Syria, where hundreds of thousands of people have died in Syria because of, under the Obama administration, they wanted regime change in Syria. They wanted to overthrow Bashar al-Assad just as they overthrew Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, which resulted in black folks being enslaved. Okay, so I think the easiest way to answer this, it, it's, listen, we're big time Monday morning quarterbacking at this point. So I want to give understanding, obviously, that it's much easier to look at these issues after they've happened, to see the effects of them, to reevaluate. And I'm sure that in the middle of these situations, it's much more difficult. That being said, I think a, a misstep that we've made as a nation, <clears throat> and this is, this is not going to sound... Uh, very peacekeeping. But I think uh, a part of uh, a national leader's job is to also do some um, soul searching about what works and what just sounds good and sounds like it works. What we're going to have to start owning up to is that nation building has not been working. It really hasn't been working like we thought. And I think a large part of that is because when we are uh, in these places and sending our military, by the way, uh, to stay there and train, um, to train uh, military members to take over where we left off, we're setting ourselves up and them for failure. Uh, I don't believe our military is capable of doing that, is supposed to. If you look at the definition of what the U.S. military is supposed to do, it's basically supposed to get in and get out. It's designed to keep us safe in instances that threaten our national security. And what I think is we got our hands in a lot of pots at once and didn't really have a plan for how to exit. And then we exited in some cases, like in Syria, prematurely, and we left holes that are going to affect us in the future, especially where terrorism is concerned. And so one of the, I think the big differences that I believe we need to <coughs> take different viewpoints moving forward with foreign policy is we have to begin to make a distinction with, and this is difficult, how you deal with the leader versus how you deal with the people of a nation. And I think, for instance, you look at Iran. We invaded, we, we took out Soleimani. I'm not going to argue with you, he was a bad guy. We took him out too soon. The people on the ground were doing the work for America. They were starting to solidify against their own leadership. We jumped the gun, go over there, and what do they do? Hey, gave you a new target to rally against. All that organic solidification that was happening on the ground, we disrupted. And we now know, I believe we know with, with pretty good authority, that the president didn't choose Soleimani because he was the number one threat, because he wasn't. But he was chosen because his name was recognizable and made great headlines for the November election. I told you about COVID-19 setting us up for failure in terms of our enemies. Our enemies saw that and now, and they already knew how you get us to make moves, right? If we can simply trick the president into making a move that he feels is a benefit for him publicly with his base, then we can create war. We can start whatever we want. So I think in foreign versus re-legislating some of these instances of the past, I think the new move forward has to be, how do we distinguish our relationship with world leaders and still send a signal 
of solidarity to people on the ground. I think what's happened in Syria is a is a human rights tragedy that will fall on a few nations heads and hands in the future. I'm not sure if the other nations will care as much, but I think it is on America to be regretful for what has happened and now to look at <laughs> how do we recoup uh, some of that human loss? What do we do about that moving forward? How do we move differently? Sanko, I have just one more question. One okay. more question on foreign policy. Uh, Jay, how would you, what would your policy be to uh, fix the trade imbalance, let's say, between the United States and China. But it's not just the United States and China. There's a trade imbalance between the United States and other countries as well. You are. What would you do to, to, to fix that? A lot of companies over the last several decades relocated to other countries and it took jobs out of many inner cities. Manufacturing went away. What would you as president do to uh, rectify that situation, especially as it relates to African-Americans in the inner cities. That's good. Um, then you throw that caveat in the end that twists the whole the whole thing up there at the end. But um, let me start with the top part of that because I think it's, it's so powerful um, to really look at the aspects, you know, of this. In terms of how it's gonna directly affect the African-American community, let me go backwards. One of the things we're doing right now is not having a discussion that we should. It'll never make the media because it's not sexy. What's going on in the South China Sea will affect what we're talking about. You have China right now making military moves they promised not to make. Why are they doing that? Couple reasons. We were light on our response to Hong Kong. China is in an effort not to be the second superpower. China only wants to be the superpower economically. And one of the ways they are on their way there is because they and other Asian nations are dominating where our tech and software processing chips are concerned. <laughs> so because we've also shipped off to these same Asian nations and given ourselves over to having our technology and our processing chips especially made by them, we've told our Americans the lie that they are not smart enough to produce these products. We've actually made ourselves vulnerable economically. And so what happens is if we don't control what's happening right now in South China Sea, you'll see China making moves, which I believe they'll also make moves on Taiwan uh, and Singapore. If they are able to kind of absorb <laughs> those nations, they will have the monopoly on software and technology which will put us at a gross disadvantage economically. And the trade issues you're talking about will be secondary uh, to some of our <coughs> concerns. I think you're watching what people probably won't keep their eyes on, what's going on in China, why some weeks you hear the president take a hard line against China and COVID, and then other weeks you won't hear him say much, is because of the very trade agreements in place. And right now we're in danger of China not following through, not purchasing what they plan to purchase. And so, you know, I think it'll be tricky. <laughs> Easy D talked about that American exceptionalism, that we're going to have to find that balance now between our rhetoric and actions that really work. Um, I'm, I'm really curious now as to how effective sanctions uh, really are. And in terms of the African-American community, I think where we might suffer most is in the certain, of course, products and goods that we're watching these tariffs and, and things we put on. One of the things that I recommend in the beginning of 2019 is that we have a tariff holiday. We have a sales tax 
uh, break vacation because people won't have their jobs back by then. And so what they'll only be able to do is use the money in their hand. And so because of COVID-19, we've got a, that question is so much more loaded now because people are in a more desperate situation than they were back in January. But I think the real issue right now, again, is the, the stuff going on in the South China Sea and how it's affecting our software and our technology. And if China gets the monopoly on that and then decides, I was watching a great uh, TV show called Madam Secretary. And uh, she was uh, the Secretary of State for the U.S. was facing off with uh, her counterpart in China. And they were accusing them of terrorism. He said, we don't have to drop any bombs on you. He said, all we got to do is call in your debt. <laughs> all we got to do is call in your debt. And he said, and then it's game over. And it made a great line in that, thank God it was a drama that I was watching on TV. What is the actual reality of our situation right now? We're $23 trillion um, in debt uh, and, and China holds the bulk of that. So, uh, you know, all of those issues are, are commingled. And at the end of the day, where African-Americans are affected is because we're already disproportionately affected economically anyway. So whatever happens at the top, if it's bad for the billionaires, you know it's going to be bad uh, for those of us who are just starting businesses and trying to get uh, sustain these businesses and get them off the ground. Wow. Excellent, excellent, excellent. 26, around 26 trillion now, debt. No way! Yeah, with the, you know, with the... You're, uh, adding in with, the you're adding in the stimulus. Stimulus, yeah, you add that in. It's 26. That's right. I gave the pre-stimulus number. I love it. Listen, wow. teach me something. Teach me something. Yeah, you're right. I was talking about pre-stimulus numbers. And guess what? We're going to need some more stimulus. Yeah. You're going to need some. There's no way around it. And, and for my conservative friends, it's not that I believe we should keep printing money, but I think we should wake up to the fact that when we needed this, we printed it, no problem. You do talk about restitution, reparations. We don't know where we're going to get the money from. You talk about expanding healthcare. We don't know where we're going to get the money from. But when you need to bail out United Airlines, we find it. the money, right? right? Uh, and those are, those are the conversations that I think we're going to have to have more of. And those are the call outs that are necessary in this season. Wow. Wow. Uh, I know that you have to run and continue some of your candidacy work, uh, <laughs> but I did notice that. Uh, oh, I'm glad we get to cover this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Right, right, right. So, talk us through this because I brought up your candidacy to somebody, and they said she's not on the ballot. I was looking at the sample ballot; she wasn't on the ballot. So, mm -hmm. what do you say to these people? I think the greatest part of running in this nation is that you have options that don't look conventional. So our original goal was to do the work of getting on the ballot in as many states possible. And we do that by gathering signatures because of COVID-19. We couldn't be out gathering thousands of signatures. We did that for some states where the numbers were low and where and when it corresponded with low COVID numbers. So we didn't want to be out there saying reprioritize people over politics, but sign this right here and, and, and don't worry about the fact that you might get COVID. Right. So we made a call. Um, in order to be consistent with our values and beliefs. And while we're on the ballot, you'll see my name in, say, Oklahoma and Louisiana, which is where you'll see on that map. But in all those states that are in dark purple, and there are more uh, than what you just showed, we have an updated map, you can vote for me. But you can vote for me as a registered write-in. So that's different. I can say, man, T. West knows his policy. I'm writing him in in Montana. Well, you can write T. West in, 
but that vote won't count because T-West didn't register uh, to be a write-in candidate. And that's the biggest misunderstanding is that when you're writing in, it's just some whim of a vote. Well, you can write in Bernie Sanders. That vote won't count because he's not a registered write-in. So we did the work of becoming a registered write-in in in the majority of states. Uh, California will be filing in a few days. That'll be uh, purple. Nevada, you can't vote for me there. We sacrificed the state. It required 10,000 signatures in the middle of COVID-19. So these states were asking us to violate their own COVID-19 restrictions when they did not lessen the signature restrictions. Uh, That gray state, Texas, which is where I live, we are going to be going to court. Indiana will be going to court because someone asked, I think think you put it in there, Seiko, candidate suppression has been real. Indiana received our paperwork hours before the deadline, let it sit in the mailroom. And then after the deadline passed, told us we didn't make it. We didn't, but we have GPS proof. We got we got the physical photo. When we called to challenge the process, we, we were told, ah, oh, there's no use in challenging it. We, we can't get a quorum together. And we kept pressing to find out who was in this quorum. Well, the same people who denied the candidacy or who they would pull together to decide to overturn the candidacy. Mm. Both two Democratic lawyers and two Republicans, no independent representative. And so we'll be going to court over these issues because we know that candidate suppression is also voter suppression. But even in light of that, all the purple, we still can win 270. We can do the same work. The independents get to do the electoral college as well. We handpick our electors and people don't understand it's an automatic process. You win Oklahoma, the electoral votes go to you and your electors march down to the state capitol and cast their electoral vote. They are pre-pledged to you in advance. Um, And so we've done that hard work, but the majority of Americans can vote for us and we're still fighting for a few states. Um, South Carolina, my home state, T-West, you see that? My home state and my resident state. I mean, if that's not biblical, I don't know what else is, right? (laughs) Are the ones I'm having to challenge the most, but... We're so proud of standing this long, this strong. Kamala Harris, when she was running for president, dropped out in November because she didn't have enough money. I don't think we ever had the money she had, you know, the whole time running. And we've been standing and I'll end by saying probably the biggest um, detriment has been the uh, explicit mainstream shutout, mainstream media. They've known we've been here since February and March and have refused to cover the story. Black media as well has known we've been here and they've refused to cover the story. So thank you both uh, for for giving me the time to share the vision. We know that when people hear it, it's powerful. And our conversion factor is real. People are sending in pictures of their ballots all over the nation. They're voting for us. They're writing us in and they're saying, Jade, for the first time in a long time, I can go, (laughs) go in the voting booth and come out not want to take a shower. Right. And feel like I just really <laughs> voted for something I believed in or like they're not voting for the lesser of two evils. And that makes us very proud. And so we believe a wasted vote is only a vote for something you don't believe in. And so we're proud that many Americans and we believe we got a lot of sleeper voters. I get text messages, people I hadn't heard from the whole time. We just voted for you. Right. And so we're excited to watch kind of this stealth movement. Uh, wake America up and, and, sh- and if nothing else, remind us that it is time for us to stand up against a system that no longer functions how it says it was supposed to function in the first place. 
You cannot, uh, yeah, Yassine was asking, you cannot write me in an all states. If you go to Operation Restoration 2020.com, those dark purple states, you can go ahead and write me in now. The red states, you'll find my name on the ballot. The light purple, we're in the process of filing, probably will be done before next week is out. Um, and then the, the other reason, those white st- states, they don't allow write-in votes, except with the exception of Colorado. So Nevada, you can go, but there will literally be no space for you to write in. So there are about eight states in the nation that don't even allow uh, write-in. And so unfortunately, if we didn't get on the ballot in those states, um, which Oklahoma and Louisiana were two that didn't allow write-in, so we, we did the work of getting on the ballot there. But just make sure you go and uh, check out that map to be sure uh, that your vote is counting, because that's important to us. We want your we want your vote to be valid. Wow. Um, I'm impressed. Brother T. West, thank you uh, for being yeah. on the show with us again. I'd love to yeah. come back. Listen, we believe a big disruption is due. I mean, we already got shaken up economically, health-wise, racially. We lost Black Panther, right? We lost, we lost. <laughs> Listen, it's been a rough year. And, and, I, and I don't believe that the disruption ends now. I, I still think we got a few more shakeups and we believe that we are the October surprise, that we're about to come out of nowhere and as we saw after the presidential debates, the search for alternative candidates went up 400%. So people went and watched that, came to their senses and said, this can't be it. And then they came looking, they came looking for us. So we believe if we continue to stand, uh, we're around long enough for people, for Americans to bump their head and realize we got to do something different. And I'd love to come back when that shakeup uh, begins to happen in the next few weeks, even if you'll have me. Oh, would, would love to. I was just blown away that there were so many people running for president. Um, and I also want to say, you know, we got uh, Joe Jorgensen who right. did get on all 50 ballots. Yeah, well, and so- she's, her party is on all 50 ballots. So when you when you if you really want to question something, don't question the candidate. You got a lady here with a legitimate third party that did the work for her. They're on all 40, all 50 states, yet she is not being covered in mainstream media. There is no reason that every American who knows the name Joe Biden and Donald Trump shouldn't also at least know Joe Jorgensen. So that's the stuff we've got to wake up about. Uh, This lady, too, if you had put her on the stage that Tuesday night, it would have been over, you know, because people see reason. Just reason is so refreshing at this point. But um, so is that women's suppression then? Is that women's suppression? No, it's not. Everybody wants it to be this, you know, argument about gender. It's it's about political power, period. Now, the whole thing with Kamala, we need a whole nother hour, because what I would ask you (laughs) is why weren't they on her bandwagon when she was running for president? Yet when she becomes the second fiddle to the older white man, she's now hashtag win with black women. Black women here running since January. I didn't get no hashtag. Huh? That we're going to have to ask whether it be now or after November 3rd, we as a community, black voices matter, unless she's not talking about Joe Biden. Come on. We, we have to have we have to have some hard conversations and I'd be happy 
Uh, <laughs> like that panel. So let me know when y'all ready for, for that discussion. Well, you got a hashtag now. Hashtag Jay Simmons. I love it. <laughs> hey, look, I know you got to run. So uh, Jay Simmons, we're going to have you back. As many times as you'll come back to spread your word and do what you're doing, America gets better when Americans okay. get better. That's good. And when Americans get involved, America gets involved. So thank you what you're doing for our great country. Thank you for what you're doing for the world. Thank you what thank you for what you're doing for the ancestors. This smiling baby. Thank this you. And smiling. I just I thank you for you shouldn't have to say this, but we've seen enough to know that it is not to be taken for granted. Thank you for the respect, uh, the acknowledgement, and um, just the appreciation that you have shown by even acknowledging that I'm here and having me on. Um, this unfortunately has been rare behavior. So when we see it, we are we are so thankful for it and proud of it. So thank you both very much. Thank All right, you. thank you, Jay. Take care. Yes. Ooh, T West, man. Uh, look, you're the political. You're the political. Closing thoughts, bro. Closing thoughts. Well, uh, Jay, she did what she said she was going to do. She confronted whatever was brought to the table, whatever questions were brought up, she confronted those questions. She she spoke to those questions. She did not dodge. She did not run away from it. That's good. And that's a testament to uh, a brilliant young black woman. Uh, she, she's and, brilliant. She's brilliant. And I mean, concert pianist and, and all. And it takes it takes a lots of uh, stuff up here to do be a concert pianist like she is, okay? And, and that's coming from a musician about another musician, okay? It takes a right. lot. And, and she's bringing that to the political realm. That's very, very important. I I, I love it. I, I, I love it. I, <laughs> she, she, she's, a, she's a big ball of dynamite. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And I'll tell you what. I think that America's America is ready for somebody like her. Yeah. We're not happy with our choices, but she presents something that's so compelling. And the thing that really caught me was it wasn't just, you know, extemporaneously for what she said. It was already on her website. She's done the research, bro. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's done the research. So T West, tell everybody where we can find you as we close up. Well, I Afrocentage News. You can find me on YouTube. You can find me also on Facebook. You know, Afrocentage, where truth and media reside. So we cover it all. We cover it all. And and I and I tell you, I tell you, uh, Jade, we're going to have to have her definitely on Afrocentage before the election. Definitely, we will ha definitely have to bring her on because I I was impressed. I was impressed uh, by her responses. Um on domestic as well as uh, international policy. So uh, that was very, very good. I I, um, I was impressed. I, I mean, she, 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 she blew any of the other candidates out of the water. Vice presidential candidates, presidential <laughs> candidates, she blew them out of the water. Right. Okay? Now, well, of course, of course, lots of African-Americans they're going to say she's a spoiler. She's a spoiler. She's going to take votes away from Joe Biden. Well, look, look, Joe Biden hasn't done anything for y'all. He, he hasn't. He's told you what he's going to do to you. OK, he's had a long, long history of telling you what he's going to do to you. 
But this young lady, she's got what it takes. And I I, I, I admire that. I admire that. Um, brilliant. I mean, I can't I can't say anymore. I, I was I was very impressed with her and her responses. Good stuff. Well, it's good to have somebody as uh, politically astute as you are on the show again. Hey, brother, we love what you're doing. Thanks for what you're doing. And for the watchers, the viewers, thank you for checking us out. Check out Jade Williams. Also, check out some of the other candidates, you know, because you have more options. You have more options. You don't have to vote for the lesser of two evils. There are more options. So, um, good night, everybody. Have a great night. Take care. Peace. This show was brought to you by Positive Vibes Incorporated, our consulting services. We do credit fixes. We do tax resolution. We lend private money and debt consolidation. So if you need some of these services, we're waiting here for you. Credit fixes, tax resolutions, private money, and debt consolidation. Stay floss, 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 stay floss. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests unless we say we agree unless explicitly stated <laughs> stay fly stay fly stay fly stay fly stay fly